This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. We're sitting down with the National Wildlife Federation podcasters, Bill Cooksey and Aaron Kindle. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Thin Green Line. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I know. What, what a cool opportunity. And this has been kind of a back and forth for us. Uh, we, John and I, were on your podcast, and this is kind of a reciprocal thing because I'm not sure if our li- listeners cross paths or not, but if, if they don't, they should. Yeah, they should. Our podcast is NWF Outdoors, and Wayne and John were gracious enough to come and tell us some of their awesome warden stories and how their podcast got started and just a really great stories. One of my favorites, Wayne. Thanks for, thanks for doing that as well. Yeah, yeah that, that was one we had been talking about for about a year. So we need to get some game wardens mm-hmm. to tell stories. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we we all have stories. That's why the Wardens Watch does so well. And I am never lacking for material. I will say that. And that it, it's really cool. And that little spin on John Wayne that we entered into yours when I said, you know, when you introduced us, I think it was Wayne John. I said, we we would prefer John Wayne. So I was in Henry, Utah, and there was a little restaurant there that is kind of a tribute restaurant to John Wayne, and I took all kinds of pictures. So I will do a little post on our, our social media of the John Wayne thing, integrating the, all those pictures of John Wayne. So it was it was kind of a neat thing. It got me laughing about that podcast uh, and, and doing that. So because I always that's the first time I actually did it while we were recording, but I've said that to John before, and uh, <laughs> I enjoy that part. Is that near the Henry Mountains? It is. It is. I believe the Henry Mountains were the last named range. You are correct. 
I, I just found that out because I was just there, and you are correct uh, for sure. I spent a couple summers in a place called Tickaboo, which you may have noticed or come, you may have missed it too <laughs> it's, it's a blink it's, it's just north of uh, lake powell there and it's right on the southern side of the henry's and spent some time up in the henry's really cool mountain range really yeah. wild place yeah big elk country huh yeah and they actually have wild bison too which is uh kind of a rarity in you know yeah. these days so that's pretty cool yeah, no, it was an epic trick. So I was out there. We took a week of vacation, went to Moab, and then uh, we had the North American Wildlife Law Enforcement Officers Association uh, conference in Provo, Utah. And then I went from there to right near Park City for the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers Conference. So I was in Utah for 21 days, and it was wow. awesome. You're uh, developing a theme, Wayne. I think everything that you you work on has this gigantic name. It's like it takes like ten seconds to say it all. It does. It does. And <laughs> and, and I'm big on branding. And it's it's funny because the the Nawia, which is the North American wild, you know that long name, they they're branding International Game Warden Association now. But they're not changing their name. They're branding it that way. So it's like the tagline. And I think it's the segue to renaming things and simplifying things. So I like simplify. It's like National Wildlife Federation. That's yeah. Three letters, three words. I want to get rid of the international on Crime Stoppers because it's just wildlife Crime Stoppers. That's that, does that tell you if it's international? It doesn't tell you it isn't. I mean, wildlife crimes occur everywhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and I think uh, you know Nike would agree with their swoosh. You know, uh, <laughs> probably the most iconic uh, branding effort ever done. Uh, and, and it's just keep it simple so people recognize it, people understand it. Uh, that's uh, that's what I like, and you're right. It's a lot of stuff, and I get confused. And the federal government and the states are full of these acronyms that drive you to drink. So, <laughs> I, I, and I been, needed another reason. Yeah, I've been uh, sitting at meetings with the border patrol and not understanding a word they're saying because most of them are acronyms. And I'm like, can we start all over again and explain what you guys are talking about? And uh, and they laugh, and, and we, we go back to square one. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely, uh, I, I like uh, National Wildlife Federation. So can you can one of you guys give me in a nutshell, uh, I mean, uh, just doing the research on this, I didn't realize how big the federation is. That's you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's just start out back in 1936 when we started um, the National Wildlife Federation. Folks may know something that's kind of a an icon of our history, and that is a political cartoon that really resonates in the sporting community. It's where you see all these folks descending on the Capitol and kind of climbing up on the Capitol. And that was in, in 1936, represented the first meeting, the first National Wildlife Conference, which is where we were formed. And, and that that particular cartoon was was drawn by J. Ding Darling, who was our first director. And he's also the uh, the, the duck stamp creator. And so what that what that cartoon represented was, you know, all kinds of wildlife enthusiasts. But particularly, there's sportsmen and women because of the decline of a lot of the big game species at the at the you know early 1900s that that basically created a self policing atmosphere that we all engaged in and said, hey. Let's calm this down. Let's have one tag. You know, a lot of the tenants of the North American model um, came from that. But 
that was when we were founded, 1936. We're one of the oldest and largest, you know, organizations out there now. Where we often say we're an umbrella organization because, you know, we're not a single species organization. We work on water. We work on climate. We work on all the wildlife issues you might imagine. Um, some international work, even, you know, some of the deforestation issues in uh, mm. South America, particularly, and what that means for neotropical migrating birds that come up, you know, to the United States. There's some of those issues. So it's basically like if it's conservation related to the environment, clean air, clean water, we're touching it somehow. Um, We've got 6 million members and supporters. We're also a true federation, which is, I think, the coolest thing about National Wildlife Federation is we have 52 state and territorial affiliates. So you can imagine that's one in every state. Mm. Um, And have Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands as, as well. And those folks have two delegates at all of our annual meetings. And it's like the Senate. They sit up there and they vote on policies that they actually helped uh, create. We have a resolutions process every year where basically our affiliates, ourselves, everybody gets together and looks at the problems of the day as they relate to wildlife. And then when we come to the annual meeting, they vote on adopting those policies and resolutions and then folks like Bill and I carry out the will of the Federation in our work by, you know, going forth and trying to tackle those issues that have been identified and that our Federation collectively has voted on and said, we need to go attack these issues. So that's the Federation in a nutshell. Bill and I work a lot in the in the sporting space. I run what's called the NWF Outdoors, which is kind of our sporting advocacy arm at, at National Wildlife Federation. And I'll let Bill talk a lot about the work he does He's got some amazing sporting and and just all around incredible conservation work he does that I'm just impressed with every time we talk. Well, yeah, we and and I'll start off on the affiliate side of things because I literally was three minutes late getting on this because I just spent two hours in a meeting with our Tennessee affiliate in a, a mayor's office in Tennessee talking about restoring a huge section of river near their city uh, for recreation and better hydrology and natural infrastructure and cleaning up some really underserved areas that have been flooding now for over a hundred years and they're all in on it and it's just it's really cool because we have people on the ground we're connected to and and we go in there and work with them and they work with us and and it, it works both ways and it's fascinating and then I'm also the out, uh, sportsman outreach coordinator for vanishing paradise and that is our um i guess you it used to be just gulf coast now it's moving up the mississippi river but it's a sportsman outreach wing of the uh, national wildlife federation started around uh new orleans and, and venice louisiana where we're losing still a, a football field of land every hundred minutes mm-hmm. um and and we work with sportsmen to advocate for restoration in that region. And it's happening. I mean, one thing down there, uh, just a week and a half ago, we had the groundbreaking of the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion. That is the largest restoration project in the history of the United States. And we don't say the world, but technically it's the world too. And and even on the the most modest uh, modeling, you're talking uh, over 20,000 acres of land will be created by this one project where right now there's just open water in the Gulf of Mexico. 
Who gets uh, to create land? I just have to bring it. I, that's where Mark Twain was wrong. You know, <laughs> buy land because they ain't making any more. And yeah. uh, we are, although we're still at a net loss, but uh, trying to replicate what God, nature, however you want to view it, did in the first place. And that's getting that sediment into the marsh. So we work there. We work with sportsmen there for that because obviously it benefits our waterfowl, our fisheries, and all that. I work on Everglades restoration in South Florida. Um, and, and now the Mississippi River, we're looking at the entirety of the river and finding places we can lean in and help make things happen. And we we do that with sportsmen because their voices right now in Louisiana, they're the most trusted voice on coastal restoration. Wow. So uh, sportsmen are key and, mm-hmm. and we're finding that all over. Yeah. We knew it, but other folks are starting mm-hmm. to face it up too. Yep. I hope you can prompt a little more on this, Wayne, because this is he's giving you the very, very cliff notes version. This thing that he's oh. talking about is is unreal and unprecedented. And the way that that will restore that area, protect it from hurricanes, yeah. create fish habitat, create waterfowl habitat. It is it is unbelievable and something we should all be celebrating. Yeah, 100 percent. We should be getting that news out there. Yeah, uh, and sportsmen are conservationists. I can't say that enough. I, I, I say, you know, we, we put our money where our mouth is every time we buy a license. Um, and, and a lot of us go above and beyond to contribute to, you know, your organization, the organizations I work with, and, and it's a constant. So when, when I when I see people attacking sportsmen and thinking they're, they're killers and stuff and i'm like no even if they want to be killers they have a bit of conservation in them because when they buy their licenses they by nature support the these efforts so and and, and their taxes on all the things they use to hunt fish i mean if, if, if someone who doesn't hunt or fish has gone somewhere and put a boat in the water or gotten in a boat at a launch ramp Odds are that came from Dingle Johnson funds, which mm-hmm. is an excise tax on fishing equipment. Uh, same thing, Pittman-Robertson dollars and the federal duck stamp. And my gosh, the, a whole lot of the places we all recreate, even not hunting and fishing, were paid for by sportsmen. And I think that's designed because that's all who were enjoying it back in that day was hunting and fishing. And now we have hikers, mm-hmm. we have outdoor viewers, we have all those people that I think should contribute to efforts like this and probably want to and maybe do on a nonprofit side of things. But, you know, that those taxes are, are were targeting sportsmen and women. Yes. And not uh, outdoor recreational people, which I, I think they wouldn't mind uh, having a little tax on their stuff to, to help to do that type of thing. Sure would be nice if, if they jumped in too, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it sure would. And like I said, I don't think they would mind. The the people that I know, the hikers that I know, if you said, hey, would you mind paying you know an extra $2, $3 for a backpack uh, in order to help preserve the, the natural wilderness or make land? Uh, down there and uh, yeah. you know support fishing and reduce hurricane effects and do uh, uh, there's not one of them that I know that would say heck no I mean you know <laughs> right right uh, but it, you know it's talking about taxes is never fun well no uh, no, no, no you're right no one and, likes it but we have to take care of this place right. and we all know it I mean now mid Baratoria isn't I'm not going to claim it's coming from Pittman Robertson funds because we're talking about a three billion dollar project but yeah. Uh, it, it's some of it is is from the oil spill funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it's state money, and then the feds are kicking in some too. But um, that that's a place where you and I can talk about the wildlife, and that's what matters to us. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, is the fish and the wildlife. Um, but the the 
protection of New Orleans, and more importantly for the rest of the country, protection of the Mississippi River. Uh, most folks do not realize how critical the Mississippi River is for commerce in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And if the wrong storm blew through and shut that river off for several months, it would be devastating to our economy. Right. There's not too many countries that have a river right up the middle that you can haul all kinds of things up and disperse it one way or the other. Yep. Um, so epic. Uh, you know, one thing I... Let's go ahead, Darren. I just, I heard Bill say the word critical. And, you know, when we talk about conservation things, you say this is a critical piece of this, critical piece of that. And I feel like when we're talking about that thing that he's working on and what that means, it's one of the times that that is an absolute real word, that it's not hyperbole in any way. This is critical fish, wildlife, commerce. I mean, it is incredible. I mean, my mind is blown every time I read more about it, learn more about it. This is a, this is a generational, multi-generational, seminal project that's really going to change the face of, of that place down there and, and for the better. So yeah, it's a right. really it's a huge victory. And it's happening at a time where, you know, Louisiana over the last uh, 50 years, I think is the correct uh, length of time, they've lost over 40% of their ability to host ducks. Um, and it's the wintering grounds for the central and Mississippi flyway. I mean, that's wow. always been the, the key spot. And now they're 40% below where they used to be. That's not all coastal land loss, but that's a big chunk of it. Um, mm-hmm. And they're also now for the first time in forever talking about having to drastically lower limits on redfish and speckled trout. And they've had very generous limits for a long time and it's getting tougher and tougher. And a lot of it is these estuaries just not being as productive as they once were because they're just becoming open water. Mm-hmm. No, it's nice. So sorry it's, for that huge deviation again, but I just can't stress that one enough. Uh, how and, important that and thank you, Aaron, because here I am on the East coast, you're on the West coast. And yeah, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. That sounds like probably the, the most important thing going on right now. Um, for wildlife conservation in a large scale and even though it's you know it offers protection and, and the things we've lost and the things we can measure we've lost so that means it, it went quick yes yeah we're, uh, we're, that that marsh you can actually see uh, anyone who's familiar with like navionics chips in their boats gps you can update your chip go out there and run everything's good come back two three weeks later at times and you'll be sitting in a spot that your Navionics will show as dry ground from just weeks ago or months ago, and you're in six feet of water. Hmm. And it happens to people every day down there. Wow. Wow. So what is the project? Are they basically taking, dredging it and putting it back? No, uh, there is dredging going on. I mean, this this area is going to take an all-of-the-above approach, but the yeah. mid area is a sediment diversion. And what the diversion does, it, it they locate spe- a specific place in the river where sediment loading is high, and they, they figure out what times, what water levels and that sort of thing give the optimum sediment load. And then they put this diversion in that will pump water out of the river when it's most laden with sediment and out into that marsh. So it's not running all the time. It's not like it's a, uh, you know, it, it it's does as close. It's as close as they can to replicating the natural way that marsh was created without wrecking it. With I mean, we can't tear the levees out and just let the river flow. That would be the perfect way. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we can't do we that. Can't do we that, have infrastructure. Yeah. We have people. We have, you know, there's stuff there now. 
Um, so this is as close as it gets. And it just pumps that water out when nature would spill it out anyway mm-hmm. and puts it right out into that marsh to start building land. And we know it works. It's happened in smaller scales all over uh, the Gulf Coast and especially in Louisiana. Um, even some rivers like the Chafalaya Delta that it's making land right now and no one meant for it to. It just happened. There are all kinds of little natural crevasses doing the same thing. So mm. there's no doubt it works and, and we're excited with that groundbreaking because it's been about 40 years in the making. Wow. That's awesome. Because um, some of the things recently and I'm going to. I'm not, I'm not a big wind fan, and it's because of the, the things. You know, we built these things called dams on our rivers for hydro <laughs> years ago, and we forgot all about the fish, and then we put all these passages in it, and I think we would have learned by that. And now we're putting up these wind towers, and, you know, we're finding out, oh, yeah, birds and bats are using those uh, ridge lines to come through, and we, we make all these roads right up to critical habitat for high-altitude animals, and predators haven't had ever any access to them and now they have access to the, all these high-altitude animals. And some of the biologists I work with are beside themselves that the, this this was going on in, in saying in accordance to, you know, greenness and energy and, you know, all the good things we should feel. But I don't think anybody knows about what's going on, you know, as far as the ecology of it. And, you know, maybe we should have studied it a, a, a little longer to, st- to to figure this out. Because then I go back to the damn thing and it's it's frustrating. I understand the long-term project and I am supportive of green energy if it works. Sure. And uh, the, I'm just so discouraged. I have windmills not too far from me. And, you know, I have biologists that have seen what happens and... You know, it's, you know, they're, they're whacking birds and then the foxes sit right underneath and eat the birds. And, you know, they didn't realize that until they put cameras up and then they could see all this going on. Uh, so it, it, it's been a little discouraging. Well, we, I mean, we have a, an offshore wind team and, and that's what they study. And mm. it's not a, it's not an all in. We have to put, you know, uh, windmills everywhere in the Gulf or off the Atlantic coast. It's a, okay, let's figure out if and how you do this in a way that doesn't harm anything, number one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm first. Right. Uh, and then after that, okay, we can, we'll can we have green energy there. I mean, it's a great idea in theory if it doesn't hurt anything. And, and it can be huge for the fisheries. I mean, we've learned that with offshore oil rigs. Yep. So there can be good, but it, but mm-hmm. you can't you yeah. can't just go willy-nilly putting right. things up and hope for the best. Nope. You got to t- go ahead, Aaron. I'm biting my tongue over here just because I have so many personal and professional connections to this. <laughs> over here. I, I know. Not that I should I, biting my tongue's maybe too heavy of a way to say it. I just, am, I have some things to add to this that I think are critical uh, with this. And that's one. We, we just recently made a, a film that basically espouses the, the sportsmen and women's connection to, to renewables development and, and why we need to be engaged. Mm. It's kind of, it's called siding in on a renewables future. And, and that is because, you know, like we talked about, you, you mentioned it a little bit, Wayne, sportsmen and women are out there every year. They notice the changes, they notice the seasons, they notice patterns that the animals and fish behave and, and those kinds of things. And so, if we are deciding where is appropriate for renewables development, man, who, who else should we be talking to? I mean, they're, they're the ones, right? But mm-hmm. you know, you got to have the biologists and stuff, but even the biologists we hear all the time, they don't know some of the historical movement right. 
phones and they don't know all of this stuff. Sometimes they just have the the data sets that they have, right? And if they didn't call our big game herds or, you know, know of a specific flyway, then they might not know that thing. But I tell you, there's probably an old codger sportsman that knows. Mm. And so uh, we're trying to get those folks involved. And that's why we made that film to really talk about all development has impacts, you know, just because it's green, just because it doesn't emit fossil fuels doesn't mean it's just wash our hands and walk away. It's the best thing since sliced bread. It still has impacts. It's still, you know, uh, has a footprint on the landscape. It still can, it, it, when done wrong, can still do some pretty detrimental things. So it's really important right now that our community pays attention to those things. We've seen the largest historic investment in renewable energies in our country's history with the Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. So those two things are infusing a ton of money, a ton of projects across the country, particularly where, where I'm concerned, because I'm in Colorado, is is these big swaths of public land and, and taking landscapes that aren't you know uh, developed or disturbed really at all. And there's going to have to be transmission across those. So you know things like co-siting with other facilities that have already been there, um, you know, using disturbed landscapes, already disturbed landscapes, putting them, you know, if you have a former coal field, that seems like a good place because it's already disturbed. Let's put the wind and solar in those kinds of places, you know, and the sporting community knows this stuff well. So mm. we're really just espousing, getting engaged and being a huge part of, you know, these these developments and how they move forward. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, because... You know, the one biologist I think of, uh, Jill Colborn, she just moved from New Hampshire to Vermont and are lost for sure. She did her master's on the, the Martin. And who does she incorporate in the with the Pied Martin? It's the Trappers because nobody knows the tra- that better. And she has formed a relationship with those guys uh, that's just beyond measure and the information she has gained through their knowledge and like you said historic knowledge and just all kinds of good things and i think every one of our biologists should be you know taking that information of people afield especially now that we have like antler hunters shed hunters and stuff they're finding a lot of deadheads out there you know, well, let's make a mini biologist. Hey, take a picture of this, you know, do this, do that, measure them up. Uh, you, you know, here, here's the form. Volunteering. Uh, it's just amazing what some of these hunters are becoming in their, uh, you know, desire to, to hunt these animals. Uh, they're becoming their own mini biologists. And uh, take that information and use that information. It is, uh, it is crucial because they are out there. And like you said, I mean, you can use all the stuff, but use all the resources available to you to make those best decisions. And I'm so glad to hear that you guys are engaged with renewable energy and from a sportsman's perspective, because uh, uh, that's definitely, and all the stuff you said, Aaron, I am on board. I am on board with that stuff. You know, let's uh, look what's disturbed, build our, build our things there, not, not start new stuff. Um, You know, the, definitely the offshore wind stuff that you spoke of. Yeah. It generates a ton of fish and stuff. And if we can look at that and make these decisions, I just think we, we put it into high drive to start and, you know, and, and I, and I know they did some wind testing because uh, I'll show you guys. And this is, I just uh, reoccurred this the other day. It's one of my cool moose stories. And I'll show you. So see this thing? This is a, get on my front of my camera. It's a moose antler. Okay. And all this stuff wrapped around it, wire and rope. 
is a test wind tower for the wind towers. So I shot it off of him. So right on the bottom there, I shot it off with a two-two-three, And I thought I was going to have to shoot the moose too because he charged me. And he was coming and I'm like, I just freed you and now I'm going to have to kill you. And he stuck his head in a puddle and he sucked the puddle dry. And then he walked three more feet and found another puddle and sucked that dry. And he did that on his way down the mountain. And uh, so I, I got the antler here. It's all wrapped up in one of my Crazy. one of my trophies. <laughs> so wow. he was caught there, obviously. He was yeah. He was, he was yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and could we have done something to prevent that? Absolutely. When moose see something, they don't walk into it. They we we could have put you know something up around to prevent this. And I wonder how many times that 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 happened to a moose that that we didn't get and then when they found there they were like oh crap we're gonna just cut this guy and drag him off and let him die so or or he was already dead generally speaking so but some got some hunters actually found this one and wasn't a very big moose that year but i'm who knows what he grew into and those are the types of things i think you know just put a little more common sense into it and uh we we can prevent this i mean it, it was for any deer or moose walking into that would have got tangled up in this mess just and these were the testing towers to see if wind would work in the area so just just little things like that that uh <laughs> i mean I, I i would add yes sportsmen should have a place at the table but it's up to we sportsmen to, to take that place mm. at the table um it, it's too easy for us and we all have buddies like this and, and most of us have a little bit of it in us it being a little bit secretive about what we do, where we do it, whether or not we've been successful yet. Some people can't help but brag. And then other, I know people who are insane hunters yet. They never talk about it publicly. The people they work with don't even know they hunt yet. It's what they do. They hunt more than I do. Um, and we need to be finding ways to take part. Um, mm. and be in all these conversations. I mean, Aaron talks about that a lot. Um, if you're not part of the conversation, you just get bypassed. And yeah. I like to say, Wayne, gone are the days that you can just show up to your spot, you know, the next season and count on it. Being there, being intact, having critters. I just, I think we're past that point of no return with how many people there are, how much technology she's changed. Oh, and wow, yeah. you probably yeah. know about technology as good as anyone, right? Like, the crazy stuff hunters are using to harvest mm. animals, some of it legal, some of it illegal, everything from ATVs and fat bikes. And it, I mean, it just sometimes I sit and think, how do these critters have a chance, you know? Um, and, and luckily they still do. And, and we're doing a bunch with habitat and our community is, is pretty invested in, in policing themselves and taking care of stuff. So we're still in a good spot, but at the same time, you know, spend that, you know, nine months or whatever your off season is learning about this stuff, getting engaged, mm-hmm. throwing your 35 bucks to these organizations, mm-hmm. reading their newsletters, writing a letter to your governor, your game commissioner, whoever you have to do, you have to do that. It's not, it's not even an option anymore. If we want a future for our kids and their kids, I mean, it's just really not an option in my opinion. And I think that's a fairly informed opinion. I don't think I'm I'm coming out of nowhere. I think that's based on a lot of data points and 20 years in this game. And I really hope people take that to heart and just, even if they write one letter in a year, mm-hmm. just, I know about this issue. I've hunted that game unit or whatever. There's something going on there. I'm going to, I'm going to lend my voice. Um, that in itself is, is 
something we need from everybody. So if we could get half of hunters to do that, we'd be in a much better spot. So Amen. Mm, no, I would agree totally, but you are right. God are those days where you can sit by and, and let it go. Uh, and you know, and it's funny, the different types of venues to deliver that because some generations hate email, hate computers, pick up a phone. You know, that is still probably the most effective way to call a senator or a congressman is picking up the phone and calling their office. No, you're not going to speak to them, but you can certainly leave a comment there for the person that picks up the phone. I'm in favor of this. I'm not in favor of this. It takes less than five minutes because they don't want to keep you on the phone very long. And yet you've, you've weighed in. Uh, and then people that are savvy with the computers, you know, you can, the, their emails are always available there. Um, certainly polls. Now, now you can actually check into like the New Hampshire House online and, and check off, you know, whether the bill that's going through to support or not support, uh, which is pretty cool. You used to have to be there in person and, and check that little right. thing and, and hand it in so they knew how many people were in attendance, but it's actually, you can actually go online at that thing and check in in favor or not in favor from, uh, you know, your, in my case, the basement. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned state legislatures, Wayne, because yeah. most of them are citizen, state, citizen-run legislatures, meaning, you know, the folks have other jobs. It's not mm. their permanent job to do this. And most people don't believe it, but almost all of those legislators, if you if you get a hold of their contact information, you call them and say, "Hey, can we have coffee?" They'll do it. Mm-hmm. And and you know you got your game commission, same thing. Mm-hmm. So you can actually have firsthand contact with the folks that are making these decisions and develop a respectful relationship, rapport, give them information, you know, help them do their job. That that's a tough job, and often they have a lot of incomplete information. I'll tell you, mm-hmm. I've been a part of some. Some Almost always. <laughs> and I've seen some stuff that was like, where in the heck did you come up with that idea? Because that is so far from anything that's reality. Man, I'm glad I talked to you because you need some other information. Yeah. So I just encourage folks, call your call your state, you know, legislature, whether house or assembly or ho- whatever you have in your state. Call them up, get to know them. They, they probably live down the street half the time and people don't even know this. And it's really it- critical. And look, if that's if that's more than you want to bite off, still make the call and give a yay or nay and a quick mm-hmm. opinion because they're sitting there scoring it. Mm-hmm. And, and 100%. when they have a certain amount of constituents call in with a no and a yes, and well, we have more yeses than noes, so that must be what my district wants. Yeah, and you want to be on that scorecard, and it, it takes seconds. Or you can, as Aaron said, you can carry it further, and most of them are nice people mm-hmm. i mean you start talking to even people in, in this work i've met politicians who i would have never voted for in my life and we become friends you know i mean we are so diametrically opposed on so many things yet they're great people and we sit and talk and a lot of times i can sway them on an issue uh, so engaging is a good thing yeah don't buy the divisive stuff Right. Yep. There's so many things designed to divide you and just say, well, you believe this or this, and there's no in the middle. And most of us are in the middle is the reality. And most of us can live with you voted for him or her or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're neighbors and friends and we can talk. And if we might disagree on that one thing, who cares? That's okay. You yep. be you over here. And let's, there's still so much that we have in common. And I think conservation is one thing we all agree on. It's just on how to go about it. Um, yep. and that's, that's the thing. I think we can all agree that we want to conserve. We want to do the best thing for our natural environment. That's why we're putting up windmills. That's why we're doing solar stuff. But yet 
Yeah, this this can affect you know wildlife populations. It can affect insect populations. It can, you know, w- what happens to our open spaces when they become a, you know, a solar field and, and and things like that. Those are the types of things that hey, let's let's talk about that and look and bring in some experts and, and work around mm-hmm. that. But I think the end game, we're all agreeing on the end game. We want to conserve. We want to you know, to do that to to for the environment totally. But we want to make the total process the best way it can for everything out there. Uh, and it's just how we get there, I think. <laughs> you know, I even, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so often, I mean, like with Recovering America's Wildlife Act, I mean, mm. I don't know of anyone really who's opposed to it, at least in concept. And it, it just comes down to conversations, you know, how do you fund it? Or, you know, and those are good conversations to have. They have to be had. Right. Should we explain that to, to your listeners, Lane? Absolutely. Lane, you, absolutely. I mean, I can give the Cliff Notes version, Bill. Feel free to, to jump in. Recovering America's Wildlife Act, you might hear it called BRAWA. And what it's basically designed to do is every state has what we call a state wildlife action plan. And that's a, that's a list of species in that state that are kind of struggling for one reason or another. You know, they're, they're headed if they don't get any you know, fixes, they're headed for the Endangered Species Act, which I think we can all agree once it hits that, we're in crisis mode and it's a problem for landowners. It's a, it's an issue, right? It's management mm-hmm. quagmire. And so what this, what this bill is designed to do is fund the work within those state wildlife action plans. And those plans are designed to recover and help and restore those species. So it's really, you know, as we've talked about, the sporting population has done a great job a lot of times their money has gone to managing ungulates and other things that we like to hunt, right? Which rightfully so in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of species that need help that don't have a dedicated funding source like that. And I think we can also all agree that, you know, the sporting community loves wildlife, regardless if it's what we're hunting. I think we can say, you know, some of the most amazing, my personal amazing wildlife stories aren't something I've been hunting. Maybe I was hunting when I saw it or experienced it, but all of us like to see songbirds. All of us like to see unique wildlife. And we don't like the thought of them blinking out or going onto the endangered species yep. list. And so it's a it's a way to to fund the all the states. And it, the cool thing about it is every state has one of these and every state gets some of the funding. Mm. And so we're talking about a monumental, you know, swell of recovery for a lot of species across the country. And some of them are. Uh, actually huntable and fishable species. I know in the West, there's a lot with cutthroat trout and bull trout, some of these, you know, iconic species that Western anglers like to, like to pursue. So those are just a couple, but, you know, Bill can add, but man, this has been a, we've worked on this for a handful of years. NWF was actually key in drafting this legislation and working with wildlife managers to get this, you know, up off the ground and we thought we were going to be there last Congress and it got as close as it's ever gotten. And then right at the last minute and some of the, you know, budget negotiations and craziness that happens at the end of Congress, it didn't quite make it, but we're hoping this Congress is the one. But I'll add from a sportsman's point of view, um, you know, you said, well, we were, we're already doing our part. No, no argument. Sportsmen do great. They, and they've done a ton, but when you, when Rawa, because of a songbird in an area restores a grassland or some timber or a wetland or a waterway. It also helps our game species. You know, we have more Turkey nesting habitat. We have more waterfowl habitat or whatever. I mean, 
there, there's no downside to it for sportsmen mm. at all. Nope, hundred percent. So, no, those are those are great another, things. Go right ahead, Aaron. Intersection there, Wayne, because as Bill mentioned, that restoring a grassland. One of the things we've been trying to talk to our followers in our community about is natural infrastructure. You know, folks here, infrastructure, and we've got all these, you know, bridges and pipelines and culverts and all the other things we we think of as infrastructure. We also have natural infrastructure, and a lot of people go, hmm, what is that? But natural infrastructure is simple things, forests, streams, this this habitat that Bill's working on. That's You're creating more marshland. That's natural infrastructure. And natural infrastructure not only creates habitat and, and protects people, but it also often protects uh built infrastructure, right? If you, if you have, you know, 20 square, acre, 20 square miles of, of additional marshland out there in the Delta, well, and then a hurricane comes that literally slows down the tide surge. It slows down the winds. It does all these things that make the impact less great on new Orleans and other inland communities. Uh, if you have a stream that's channelized and beat up and doesn't have any vegetation on its side, and then it, you get a heavy rain event. Well, the water comes ripping down and tears through bridges and gullies and all kinds of things. But if you have a meandering stream with lots of vegetation and wetlands, well, that water comes down and it has places to spread out. And when that happens, it also creates great habitat for fish and ducks and aquatic insects and all those things. So you have this amazing synergy between what you need and what you want. Which is which is really rare, and and you know we also work a lot on getting the sporting community more engaged in climate issues, and that right there has the bullseye eye on it for me because climate resilience is what natural infrastructure creates. If you have healthier forests, healthier streams, anytime you have one of these climactic events that are increasing these days, mm. you have better you have a better buffer against them. And at the same time, you have better habitat. So can we do work like the sporting community advocating for replanting a burnt forest, for revegetating a denuded stream, for restoring the grasslands, as Bill mentioned, for you know restoring habitat for all these species in trouble? Those things all help us mitigate the impacts of climate at the same time, create greater habitat, more opportunity for all of us. It's just a win-win. And I'd, I don't think people think of it like that. And I think that's one of the things we have our job is to do is to help people understand that those things are climate projects. Yeah. And you don't, it doesn't matter where you are in this whole climate discussion, because let's face it, you can get into a whole world of hurt Mm -hmm. depending on where you are and which end of it you come from. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about climate change, we're not talking about, you know, EV mandates. We're not talking about the politics of petroleum or whatever. We're talking about things we ought to be doing anyway. Yeah. That actually mitigate the climate, the issues we're seeing from climate change. And even like marsh, it's one of the greatest carbon sinks there is. It just soaks it up. So if, if you're way on that end, well, this stuff's awesome for, for that. Right. You know, it, it helps. And there's just no loss in doing this, mm, no matter where you stand example. up politically. Yeah, and it's a perfect example of we mentioned the the infrastructure or the Inflation Reduction Act, bipartisan Infrastructure Act. That that can some of these projects can take that funding. So there's this huge infusions right now of money into this, and it's our job to tell those stories and show the benefits and bring our sporting voice into that to show them. You know, if you, if you fix this habitat right here, look at this. 
you save this community downstream because this river is in such trouble that every time you get a big rain event, it just plows through there. But if we, you know, created some wetlands and some marshes here and, and revegetated, you can yeah. actually mathematically, physically show the benefit. And they're luckily now that's becoming more of the of the nomenclature and the conversation that, that people are willing to listen to and, and do these kinds of projects are a huge boon for anybody who loves wildlife mm. no you guys are in the perfect position to, to have these conversations with, with all sides because we all love wildlife and uh, whether you're on the sporting side or whether you're on the you know just loving wildlife want to see it want to be the the guys i mean that's you guys are the perfect uh segue to have this conversation between all groups that's that's really cool. So I'm glad we're having that conversation. I'm glad we're bringing that out to my listeners because I'm sure I have listeners on that are all of the above. Um, I sure. hope I have listeners all of the above because I love diversity in people because I, I, I may not agree with you, but I respect your view. Uh, and that's one thing Bill and I have been kicking around. I want to talk about this, Bill, about the the, the game wardens and where we're going to be going in the future as far as, uh, you know, trespass and cartilage and the Fourth Amendment. I mean, mm-hmm. you and I have gone back and forth on this. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I won't say I'm nervous, but I, I, I'm, I'm standing up and taking, you know, a position because, you know, this is our wildlife that's going to probably get affected long term yeah. if game wardens can't effectively enforce the rules and regulations uh, of the state or the federal government without going onto private property. If you can post your private property, you just created the best place to poach animals and do whatever you want. Oh yeah. So I look last year, I actually called a game warden and said, I know some guys are baiting waterfowl and there was nothing he could do unless I could get in the permission from the owner of the property. Mm. he, He said, I can't get, I can't get a warrant on that. And this was in a place where they don't recognize open fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was like, my God, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. I understand the private property argument. I do, I, man. I, I do too. I very am, well. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm there with you, you know? Uh, and, and I think part of it is part of the problem right off the bat is misconceptions. People have had for a long time. You know, how many times have you heard oh, a game warden could come in your house anytime he wants to, well, we yeah. can't. And, and the still the Constitution that. and the Bill of Rights. That's, yeah, and, and this, <laughs> yes, he can go onto your property in most places, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can anywhere they want to. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are states and jurisdictions where you, they can't. And I got into an argument with, last night with a guy about this. Big hunter, great guy. He's just my my property rights are more important than a deer or a duck. I said, well, then let's not talk about conservation. I said, but since you want to make it much more difficult to ever catch and prosecute a guy poaching on private property, poaching a public resource on private property. Why don't we triple or quadruple the fines and penalties if you are caught and convicted? Because it's going to cost more to catch it. Mm-hmm. And he actually thought about it and said, yeah, I-, I could see maybe that being an alternative. If you're willing to pay a lot more, I- I, you know, at least we're, having a conversation you know you increase penalties enough people won't do it maybe but yeah it's a bad situation it is a public resource and Mm -hmm. just because you're hunting them on private property doesn't mean you aren't subject to the same thing those of us on public property are 
I mean, if they want to put up a 30-foot fence and keep all wildlife out of their property, <laughs> because, you know, like you said, it's a public resource and it goes mm-hmm. on your property. And to be honest with you, most large landowners work well with law enforcement. If there's something yeah. going on illegally on their property, if, if they're not doing it, they want you to catch them. So yeah. the, the problem I see is when they're doing it. And now you have no resources to do that. And we're asking the CIA to use their satellites to, 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 to do surveillance and things like that. I love throwing those things out, too. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has the potential to be a huge mess for us. It yeah. really does. I mean, but you like it. We could, you know, I'm thinking I can fly a drone over there. Where's the airspace end? And, you know, and start doing all kinds of different things to, you know, make that where I used to be able to walk. Now I've got to fly a drone at a certain height to, to do mm-hmm. the surveillance to see if it's a baited duck area. Uh, things like it's just, it's just, it's, it's to the point of really it, ridiculous. I think we all, in some places, they aren't allowed to do that. Right, exactly. So um, that's where I go to the satellites and the CIA can give us a little time on their satellites yeah. and stuff. And uh, we'll be able to like re- read their gun serial number off the guy sitting over the illegal bait. And, and look, I, I, <laughs> the idea of maybe some guardrails here or there, um, one state you and I have talked a lot about in the past. Yeah, the case that brought that forward, that made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, you know, what, what they did went so far yeah it was a bad guy he needed to get caught mm-hmm. i agree that was too much yeah and if i start thinking that well yep i can see how we got here we have bad cases bad cases yep. make bad laws and mm-hmm. we got to remember that from the ground up because they can go from yep. the ground up and uh you know i can think of several laws game wardens have made in my state that <laughs> <laughs> really weren't conducive to the, the future of it but uh you know and i'm gonna bring one up actually so uh viewing moose my uh my lieutenant uh the, the the moose people used to come up and it was the town a local town used to do moose tours and they would come mm-hmm. up and they would shine moose during the closed shining season and so he stopped them and gave the driver a ticket from the town he was totally right the next year comes around a law that you can look for moose, and it was designated areas, designated times, and so Doug created, I call it the Doug Law, because he made it the point, and he was absolutely right, um, and the next year it just comes around, and now we, we deal with the, the, the rule or the regulation or the law that's impacting that. Um, right or wrong, did that affect the, the wildlife? Probably not a whole lot, uh, either way. Uh, but it was just one way that uh, being, you know, doing something, hey, you know, could could you look the other way? It's a moose tourist probably. He was like, nope, this is the law. This is a regulation. Here you go. Here's your ticket. And now they form legislation to make it okay for commerce for, you know, and that's just one example I'll get. And he'll get a right. chuckle out of that. I shared that because uh, Doug's law. <laughs> But uh, when you see a spotlight come out of a truck down here, it's, uh, well, we don't have moose, but there's probably a rifle in it mm-hmm. somewhere. So, A hundred percent. And I, you know, we are very schooled in the Fourth Amendment search and seizure, the curtilage of a house. Yes, we need search warrants for that. But that open field, when we start restricting acreage, hundreds mm-hmm. of acres to, you know, wildlife law enforcement, um, uh, it's just going to go bad for the resource for the wildlife. It's just no Amen. way about it. So, um, so yeah, those are definitely things that we've had discussions and good discussions too. I enjoy those with you, Bill. So every Me time I, I read so, an article about it or something, I think of you. 
Well, ho- hopefully we'll get it straightened out down here and, and yeah. get things back to a, a sustainable place for both for both property owners and our fish and wildlife. A- absolutely. I mean, for those, uh, and I understand property rights for sure, but again, if somebody's doing something wrong on my property, I, I want them caught. Um, yeah. You know, and I, most most landowners, if they're not the problem, uh, you know, they're the solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you don't have those issues out there, do you, Aaron? Not exactly. No, not uh, not like that. I mean, I mean, we obviously do have big landowners, and yeah, you know, the game wardens need to come on to them. But and you, uh, you have public access issues though with those big squares of land that no one can access. Yeah, that corner crossings, you know, the corner crossings, if you will, that gets, yeah. it's, that's getting really interesting by the day. Folks may be aware of a situation in Wyoming that happened, and there's literally millions of acres that are behind, and, you know, some of these 640 tracks, these square mile tracks that are landlocked, if you will, by private lands or, you know, that are public land and, and you know, those landowners don't pay taxes on them, but sometimes they basically treat them as if they're their land and you can't go there because of that corner crossing law. And we'll see where this Wyoming case goes. Mm. So far it's going to the, to the direction of those being actually accessible. So we'll see. It's not, it's not decided quite yet. Right. Nope. Definitely keeping on that. And even on the East coast, open access to land. We've had a thing called current use, which is awesome. If your land is in current use, people can hunt fish and everything because you get a tax break. Uh, 20% of your taxes goes off. So, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, most of Vermont, I believe is, you know, open if it's not posted and if it's posted, they're paying that additional amount of money uh, to the taxes, but it's a big tax break. And when you own hundreds and thousands of acres it's significant to have that tax break and we've had that and it's kept our open spaces uh really good so we'll we'll have to see what the future brings because i can there's been definitely some different organizations buying large tracts of land and saying hey no you can't hunt you can't fish and everything Mm. but um again they have to post it and that's a when you take a thousand acres and try to post that around on a legal posting that's that's you could have a full-time guy doing this stuff um certainly managing that property and doing it that way and you know certainly the sportsmen's take issue right away with that because especially they've hunted and fished it all their life and then they see this go up in the name of conservation <laughs> and like go go right t- ahead t- Bill. in tennessee we you will get popped even if there's no posting. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's your responsibility to know where property lines are. So if you cross one and they can prove it and that, you know, fortunately with technology, that's mm, getting easier and that's easier. Been awesome. To, you know, I mean, I've, I've now hunt where I live a ton of tiny public properties. Yeah. And, and, and I'm focused on the tiny ones cause other people don't. Right. And, and but, a Not lot now. of times, Sorry, I'll be there next time. I know it. I know it. <laughs> I've, I've been saying this for years. I mean, when when someone can pass a hundred to go to five thousand, they're going to pass the hundred every time. I'm mm-hmm. I'm lazy enough that I'm okay hunting a hundred acres instead of a five thousand. But you know, being able to find those property lines is critical because it would be awfully easy 
at times to cross over and, and not really know it. So Yeah, I know that technology, Onyx, HuntStand, all of those now is just, uh, yeah, so important, especially intentional too. You know, if, if you have Onyx and you're on the wrong piece, you're guaranteed that was probably intentional. You know, if you're 30 feet over, that's that's one thing. If you're, you know, half a mile in, quarter mile in, or, you know, a couple hundred yards yeah. in, that's, now that's intentional if you have this app on your phone and you you can do that. Uh, that's that's one thing I like about it. it it's if, if you if you're using that, then and you're on the wrong spot. That's intentional. <laughs> yeah, I I actually had it open this year on a turkey, and was watching the turkey and watching that app and let him get well inside of my side of the property line before I shot him. But there was no clue otherwise of mm-hmm. where that property line was. So it it helped me feel a lot better. Right. And, Ten years ago, I, I'm not sure how I would have handled that situation. Yeah, it's been a game. Ch- a, Go ahead, Aaron. Can I make a little bit of a plug because it because of that game changer? We're mm. actually having a fella from Onyx on the NWF Outdoors podcast here soon. Nice. And if you check out our NWF Outdoors uh, Instagram or anything like that, we, we're asking folks, "Hey, what do you want to know from Onyx? This technology is evolving really fast." You know, things are, they're updating. I don't know if you guys pay as much attention. I do They have 3d now, lots of different things. And, uh, so I was curious about, you know, the, the evolution of that, how it started, where it's headed. So we wanted to have them on. We're going to give away a couple of, uh, elite memberships to the people whose questions we choose. So mm. if you, if you, you know, are listening to this and you want to hear that podcast, get your question in and maybe you'll win your, your annual membership. Yeah, there's a lot of states. How about you, Wayne? Do you have any you have any questions for us, Wayne? We'll throw them out there. Yeah, well, <laughs> Onyx has been a game changer for law enforcement because yeah. you know a lot of the complaints are trespassing complaints, and you can clearly show the landowner that thinks they're on his property that they're, a they're not, or yeah. the hunter that he's on the wrong property, and and generally hunt, the, the hunters have it now. I, there's there's a lot of guys if you if you're not. Just like you said, just going into a small piece. I mean, I have it. I bought the four-wheel drive version. I got to figure out how to switch it over to hunting here again. Uh, but that that's kind of cool because it shows all the trails and places. And I added some more trails to it that weren't on there. Uh, myself, when I walked it, you know, and that's adding up. And, yeah, it's been a game changer for law enforcement because it gives us more of a guessing. We have to go to the town offices on Monday morning and do a lot of research and stuff. That's all been done for us and laid out right there. So we can have a... And it's not always a hundred percent, but we can have you know probably a, you know a seventy five percent you know chance of being correct on a Saturday or a Sunday with the complaint, um, and at least get all the the facts and the information if we have to to follow up on it. Uh, but total game changer saves a ton of time for an officer because that's what we used to have to do when there was a landowner complaint and it was close. You'd go down to the, you know, you look at the tax maps and then you'd have to try to figure it out. And and sometimes, you know, you'd have to tell them, Hey, you're gonna have to get this surveyed because it's too much in it. So, and right of ways are another, that thing uh, as, as a game warden right of ways uh, to speak to, you know, if it's not restricted right of way, Right away, you can drive a tractor trailer over it. You can drive a horse over it, ATV back and forth all you want, which is usually the complaints we get generated. But it's a right of way. And it, unless that owner restricts it to conventional vehicles only for, you know, and you can do that in a deed. It's amazing what deeds are. And deeds are like wills. Judge, judges do not like to mess with a deed. If the deed says it, 99% of the time he's going to side with the deed because it has it in it. And uh, it's funny because I've had dealt with my own deeds a few times and had specific things 
put in there and then you know taken out of there or things because of the dealings I've had with deeds uh, because they can be very infuriating uh, for somebody that buys a you know has a has a deeded right away through their property and then people start using it that have ATVs and then constant ATV right by and the right of way goes right by you know their house or their camp or something like that so it can, can be a point of contention which uh, so and Onyx you know sh- usually shows those those ways too um, as far as that it may not show the deeded right of way but if it's a trail or a path it may be a deeded right of way so I always caution people when they're buying property and there's a deeded right of way look at it and if you're going to create one um, make sure it's specific to what you want. Say it's conventional vehicle only if you don't want ATVs running up mm. and down it. Um, if you're creating that right of way on a, on a document like that. But I've had several go to court and uh, the judge has always sided with the side of the deed. And it's, I think it's just like, you know, when, you're, when, when you die, they don't really want to mess with that unless it's absolutely necessary in your will. Wow. So... Um, the judges don't like to make decisions unless they have to. If it's already made for them. <laughs> I don't expecting know. Expecting they start selling waypoints pretty soon in the future. Like, have you guys? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm expecting it to happen. Where someone says, "I'll share my, sell you all my Onyx waypoints in the." You know, Ooh, the like, that's a good idea. Now, I've I've known a lot of folks down here in public waterfowl areas in the past would sell their GPS waypoints to people. Yeah. You know, like, okay, you you want my Biomita, which is in the picture behind me, it's a public timber area. You want my waypoints, I'll sell them to you for 500 bucks. And yeah. people would buy them up. <laughs> yeah. I wonder uh, if that's going to start happening or already has. Well, it's like the guys that go with a, a guided hunt or something, and the next week they're out there hunting right where the guide put them. <laughs> you know, it's it's totally legal. What can you do about it? I mean, is it ethical? You know, probably not. Uh, you paid him to show you this spot, but now uh, you're back right out there the next weekend. A good friend of mine who's a fisherman, a fishing guide on Real Foot Lake, um, it's changed now because everyone has it in their phone and it's almost impossible to deal with. But when GPSs mm-hmm. became a big thing and so many people had them, he would have people show up and, and they'd be in there. They'd start catching bluegill or crappie and they'd start pull this thing out and they'd start punching on it. He said, what are you doing? He's marking it on my GPS. He said, man, be careful because the fish quit biting whenever those things are turned on. <laughs> and it'd, it'd take them a minute or two and then, oh, I got you. And that was his thing. You pull it out. We ain't catching fish. Yeah. No more. I can't blame them. That's how they, they, they make their money and that's mm-hmm. how they make their living. So I so I totally understand their corner. But when they complain to the game warden, there's nothing we can do. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. We have scratched uh, so many different things uh, through this whole podcast. Uh, it's pretty exciting. And, and thanks for bringing. We don't talk a lot about the, the legislature or what's going on around the country and what, you know, we can do to help because, uh, you know, everybody, we, we all have a say in this country, whether you're a game warden, whether you're a hunter, whether you're a fisherman, whether you're a wildlife watcher, you know, we have a say. And, and let's, let's make that say sick. And you guys are great at organizing and reaching and being an advocate for wildlife. And that's pretty impressive. Thanks for the platform, Wayne, and, and the work you and John and your crew are doing there. It's We love hearing your stories. You guys are putting your sometimes lives on the line, literally, to, to, Amen. to check mm. these resources. And I can't thank you enough for that. That's a critical, really important, you know, just service you're providing us. And just thank you so much for that. And thanks for taking care of our wildlife and making it all possible. 
Yeah, and I think we got to thank Waypoint Podcast for putting us together because we're both uh, yeah. on that. And uh, they kind of joined us up for uh, the podcast on each other's, which I think was a great fit, a great introduction. So I, I really appreciate that they did that and that what they do for the podcast, uh, outdoor Absolutely. podcast genre, for sure. So I tried to get uh, Wayne to deviate down to Colorado when he was uh, headed to Utah, but... <laughs> I know it was a big it was a big detour so yeah maybe next time Wayne <laughs> another time Aaron it would be a pleasure so yeah. very cool Vision gentlemen future, hopefully thanks for joining us on the thin green line